Hello and welcome to the Service Transformation Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things serverless. In this week's episode, we hear my interview with Ant Stanley, co-founder of Homeschool by Senzo, AWS serverless hero and independent contractor. We discuss the latest announcements from reInvent and how they'll impact serverless architectures in 2021. Hey, Ant, how are you? Hey, Ben. I'm good on this cold Monday morning. <laughs> Still uh, making do with working from home? Yeah, surviving somehow. Um, it's I, Yeah, I've just kind of got into a rhythm. So, yeah, this feels like the normal. So, yeah, let's carry on. Yeah, new normal's being said way too much these days. Um, on that subject, you've recently launched Homeschool by Senzo. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so Homeschool is... Um, it's an online learning platform where it's a, a, it's, we focus essentially on mentored cohort-based training. So the, the big differentiator with, differentiator with homeschools, we're working with a number of AWS heroes um, to, bring, uh, to bring their body of knowledge and bringing their skills um, to training courses that are mentored and cohort-based and time-boxed. So you know, we realize a lot of training courses today um, – uh, are self-study. A lot of online training courses are self-study. You end up buying these courses, forgetting about them, um, you know, never really doing them and completion rates get really low. Um, whereas what we focus on is it's, you know, small class groups. Uh, you have access to the instructor via Discord and via weekly video chats. And um, everything is time-boxed with new releases of content every week. So you kind of build up this cadence uh, at which you study. And then... Um, and then it is uh, kind of smaller groups, so you, we kind of make sure that you can actually ask ask your instructor questions, and we make sure that those instructors that we work with are leaders in their field. So for people like uh, Ian Shuri, um, the Burning Monk himself, a leading service expert, to Slobodan uh, Stojanovic and Alexander Simovich, who are also AWS heroes, they've got a testing course and they've written a book around Node.js uh, for service architectures. Um, and uh, Vlad Ionescu, who's an AWS container hero. That's some of the instructors. But yeah, we only work with top quality instructors and we want to make sure that you have access to them. And yeah, I think a lot of people are looking for that expert insight to short circuit their, their learning paths with serverless and other cloud-based technologies. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Um, it. I couldn't have said it better because that's exactly what it does. It does short circuit your, your learning. Um, you're not going to be stuck by yourself lost in blogs um, that don't have any context. If you have any kind of question that might not be even be directly related to the course, you can ask it because if it's on your mind, it's there and you've got someone who can answer that for you. So it might be a compression algorithm for experience. <laughs> Those don't exist, but we can try. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And we, of course, also run the Serverless London Meetup together and yeah. we're planning a session after reInvent to go through all the announcements and maybe do a bit of a panel discussion. But in the meantime, I thought it'd be cool for us to, to get together and go through some of the biggest serverless announcements we've heard so far. Yeah, sounds good. All right, well, let's start with the big one, the most contentious one maybe, the Lambda container supports. Yeah, that's an interesting one because the reality, that's not for us, as in that's not for people who are using Lambda today. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing the AWS Lambda team have been very good at over the last five, six years now, like six years of Lambda, is um, is removing blockers to adoption. You know, so when Lambda first came up, people had a list, a hundred reasons why you shouldn't or couldn't use it. And every year they've done something 
to remove a blocker to adoption, you know, which has increased adoption and increased our use of it. And that's all that this container support is doing. It's removing a blocker to adoption. It's for those folks who have um, experience using containers today, who are very comfortable using containers today, who have all those tool chains set up to build and ship containers today. It's This is for those folks. Um, you know, for us who've been using haven't been in the container world who are you know still zipping and shipping our lambdas using service framework or sam or whatever other tool you want to use um it's not for us you know it's for the folks with existing uh, investment in containers and i think i think it's good because it will open up use cases um and it will open up the the size of the service community because it becomes more accessible i think accessibility is a major plus i guess then the maybe naive question that's going to happen quite often, I think, is, okay, I've got my big monolith. Can I lift and shift it to my Lambda function? Yeah, that's going to be a tough one. Um, for those few folks who've driven their, who've written their Lambda function and their monolith in a stateless way and made it event-driven, yes. But for the other <laughs> 99%, unfortunately not. Um, you know, maybe some like express workloads if you have kept it stateless, but in general, no, you can't just lift and shift. You're going to have to have some re-architecture. It's the, yeah, Lambda container and container support is not about lifting and shifting your containers. It's about using your existing tooling uh, to build serverless event-driven applications. Um, so you've still got to do some re-architecture in there. Which makes complete sense because it's stateless and event-driven. On the tooling side, it sounds like, so Sam, of course, has come out with supports uh, with release um, and its serverless framework has, I think, as of this week, caught up um, and released its own sort of container supports. Have you played around with either of them yet? No, 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 not yet. Um, I, I don't run any container runtimes on my laptop. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I'd have to install Docker. Um, I, I am interested in doing it because um, the way you can encapsulate dependencies um, in a Docker file does make things interesting. Um, so yeah, you can do kind of more out the box things with it. Um, if you need to, you know, also it'll be easier than, than potentially configuring a Lambda layer, a custom Lambda layer. You could just, you know, whack everything into a container and ship it without having to, to maintain a layer if you want to do anything non-standard. Um, but no, I haven't played around with it yet. And I think one of the one of the other advantages people are looking at is the developer experience. You know, people are used to running Docker locally. Maybe not yourself. But other people are used to running Docker locally. Um, but I think that's going to come with a bigger tendency to mock. And I think a lot of us, maybe serverless purists, have been very anti-mocking and very much run your integration tests on a temporary environment against the real architecture. Do you think people are going to make more of a move to mocking with Docker support? Um, I don't. I think many will try and I think they will fail like we all have. Um, you can mock certain things, but mocking only gets you so far. You know, as soon as you need to test um, against a DynamoDB backend, for example, or mm-hmm. you know, something that exists in the cloud and you need to you know, get the full benefit. So a really simple one is you know, writing to S3 and you might have another event that triggers off an S3 um uh, that a uh, lambda function or an S three trigger, um, you can't mock that out easily. You can you can um, you can have a simulated trigger and you can simulate your write, but you can't do an integration test using mocks really. So you can only do really small unit tests locally, even if you are using mocks. And you'll find that you know, particularly with um, serverless architectures, most of your testing that's useful is actually integration 
tests mm-hmm. rather than unit tests. Unit tests only get you so far. Um, you need to have the whole thing end-to-end working. Um, so you're going to end up doing that in the card anyway. That makes complete sense. And I think the final sort of stumbling block is going to be people trying to understand the differences between Fargate and Lambda with Docker. Yeah, so my feeling is uh, the easiest way to do that is um, Fargate state for Lambda's not um, Fargate, it's long-lived, Lambda's not. So you've got to think about those two things. Um, is this a stateful um, uh, a workload? You know, something that maintains state within itself. So you can even run databases in Fargate if you want to. Um, and the second one, um, is it long-lived? Does this process need to live for a certain period of time? You know, it can, you know, the process could potentially, because Fargate's, containers will die and be respawned in that but you can have significantly more long-lived processes in fargate and probably the third one is this event driven versus not you know you can have non-event driven workloads in lambda though um so the the key bit for me would be you know is it stateful and long-lived stateful long-lived fargate if it's stateless short-lived um lambda you've got a tweet built already yeah um so can we with that container support we're seeing big increases in the resource supports on Lambda, both in terms of RAM and CPU. I think you've been playing around with this recently? Yeah, yeah, I've been trying to break it. Um, it's, <laughs> it's another one of these things that's that's actually just not so much for me. It is and it isn't. Um, so because I write a lot of my code in Node.js, Node.js have, has a number of limitations. One of its big ones is memory. So standard node runtime uh, only supports 1.4 gigabytes of memory. Um, so having 10 gigabytes available is not so useful. Uh, Node as itself is not inherently multi-threaded. It, you can, it can be multi-threaded by pro, uh, spawning processes and a few other things. Uh, what I've been playing with is, uh, is workers in Node.js, worker threads in Node.js, mm-hmm. um, using, essentially doing MapReduce using worker threads. So the example I'm working with right now, and hopefully I'll have that code out the next day or two, um, is using, using Fuse.js, which is a fuzzy search library and running that within a worker. Um, so I'll, I want to search a, a data set. I'll convert that data set into JSON. I then chunk it up into a file per uh, number of worker, per, file per worker that I want to run. And then in the worker process, basically, loads the file, searches it, and then returns that returns its search results back to a master process that then reduces all those search results and sends it back. Preliminary, it seems to be working. I've got to do a little bit more work with it, but it's it, it opens up um, support for more multi-threaded type applications. Um, you know, so it's another one of these things that you know people had a you know would have had a stumbling block. You know, I can't use Lambda because um, it's not inherently it's not that multi-threaded. You only ever had two vCPUs, or I couldn't load my full data set into memory. You know, now particularly for people doing data science type workloads or even machine learning type workloads. Um, it'll make a, make a big difference. And that's that's the other side, is they also announced um, extended instruction support um, mm-hmm. for uh, SIMD instructions. So, you know, the Python folks are probably going to love love, the, love that with the combination with uh, large resources. So if you're running TensorFlow, um, it's going to run faster um, faster and better because you now you've got, um, you've got significantly more threads to work with, more memory, and extend instruction support. So yeah, it's, it's big for a whole bunch of folks. And I guess if you had a look at TensorFlow.js and whether that is applicable. Yeah, yeah, I've had a, had a long look at TensorFlow.js. So there's this, um, so TensorFlow.js from version 2.3 
uh, moved to a WASM backend. So essentially what mm-hmm. it is now is most of the heavy lifting is done by WASM, not JavaScript. Um, and it's just JavaScript over APIs over WASM. So that massively increases its performance. Um, then on top of that, um, with the move to a WASM backend, um, that WASM... WASM can use the SIMD instruction set significantly easier and it can mm-hmm. use more threads uh, than than JS can natively without having to spawn off worker threads and that kind of thing. Um, so it will, will for folks folks using TensorFlow.js, you will see a significant performance improvement. Um, and then the other side is V8 improved its support for SIMD instructions in um, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And then Node.js shipped the version of V8 with the with the improved SIMD instruction set um, support uh, in Node 15.3, which is the latest version available. Mm-hmm. So if you want to use, you can use Docker for this or you can use a Lambda layer for this. If you run the latest version of Node, which isn't a standard Lambda runtime right now, you can potentially get up to 10 times increase uh, of performance using TensorFlow.js higher than 2.3 with Node uh, 15.3, which is huge. You know, 10x plus performance. In theory, that's what you you can achieve uh, now on Lambda. So for inference workloads, that would be huge. And that's that's an experiment I want to run in the coming weeks as well. I'm looking forward to machineless learning, whatever we're going to call it. Yeah, but I think that that's the easy, like that's the easy first use case for a lot of this stuff is, yeah. you know, inference workloads uh, where you got to do object detection or you know things like that where, and you need this stuff to happen in a stateless way quickly. You know, this could bring those times down significantly. No, definitely. And coming with that, and the timing aspect of it, the billing for Lambda has also changed. It's now per one millisecond, which is coming down from per 100 milliseconds. Yeah, the millisecond yeah. billing is, is interesting. I think you've seen lots of debates. You know, Some people say, you know, this is life-changing, it's going to change your world. Other people are saying, no, it's not going to make a massive difference. I think it depends how you use Lambda. If most of your Lambda functions are running for 10 minutes, you know, millisecond billing, isn't going to make a huge difference. If you are doing like data transformation on Lambda, doing things that take you using long-lived Lambdas um, that go for that, you know, that push the edges of um, uh, of the Lambda execution time, it's not going to make a big difference. If you are using Lambda for particularly kind of synchronous workloads, you know, serving web requests, that kind of thing, where a lot of your stuff, once it's warm, is under 100 milliseconds, it's going to make a big difference. Um, mm-hmm. And also a lot of those folks who are using Golang, for example, which is often gets sub 10 millisecond, um, sub 10 millisecond execution times, they'll have up to like a 90% discount. So yeah, I think it depends who you are. You know, um, folks running long-lived Lambda, uh, it's not much of a difference. Folks running short-lived Lambdas, Lambda functions, huge difference. Especially if you take advantage of things like Lambda power tuning to really play around with the different variables and try and optimize that millisecond. Yeah, yeah, massively, yeah. Now there's a proper, like, real financial incentive um, to to actually do that. You know, it's not a few cents. It could be a lot more than that, particularly the folks who are doing millions of invocations a month. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm moving away from Lambda. Um, Glue has actually made quite an interesting release for serverless event-driven architectures. Um, so Glue Elastic Views allow you to have sort of multiple places where the same data is being stored. So you might have some data in DynamoDB, but also have it replicating to RDS and Elasticsearch. And we were talking the other day about how this is probably super useful for business intelligence, but also 
potentially for event sourcing. I know you've been playing around a lot with CQRS over the past year. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how this might change event sourcing for serverless? Uh, yeah, massively. Um, so yeah, the Elastic Views, a lot of folks have been achieving what you can with Elastic Views using uh, DynamoDB streams, for example, and a Lambda function. Uh, you know, and writing to a secondary data store of some sort that you can use it, whether it's Elasticsearch or, you know, um, Athena or, you know, maybe even another DynamoDB table and just writing that data in a more aggregated way, for example. This now removes the need for that completely. Like you don't need to, you've got a piece, you can, you no longer need to manage a stream, you no longer need to run a Lambda function, moves that completely. Um, and it just, just becomes a configuration. I love wherever you can remove code and just use um, configure tool to do something rather. So, you know, we're removing code and we're basically, um, it's cloud formation to spin this up and get this working, um, which is great. It removes what you have to, the surface area of what you have to maintain and the scope of what, what you have to look after. Um, yeah, and the really interesting thing is, you know, for CQRS patterns where you're splitting your writes from your reads, you'd have your, let's say you're, you're writing to a Dynamo DB and maybe you're, um, uh, you've got a stack of users that are now reading from, um, uh, or you're using Elasticsearch, for example, to do searches and doing some sort of that data. Um, this makes that significantly easier, you know, and so we're getting more advanced patterns become significantly easier. And obviously the other big use case is going to be BI users. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those business analysts who want to have a look at this data, you don't want them writing, you don't want the reads hitting your main database, you want them hitting um, some sort of secondary data store. Um, and so it'll be a big, big win for them. You know, they're going to be a lot of, a lot of um, admins out there, a lot of developers going like, okay, let's, I just want to get rid of all these, all these um, business analyst users uh, who are running big queries on my data stores um, and slowing them down. You know, they now have a view to do that and you can control what they look at and improve their performance and make your life easier. And those business analysts also are not waiting for 2am cron jobs to (laughs) shift data over. Yeah, yeah, massively. Yeah, and they can see something, you know, close to live rather than at batch intervals. So uh, now looking sort of between serverless and containers, AWS also released AWS Proton, which is um, an automated management for doing deployments, be them containers or serverless, coming with a lot of a lot of ways for operations team to sort of set up guardrails and templates for developers to take advantage of. Have you had a look at this so far? Um, unfortunately, I have. Um, so Proton's still very much a preview service, and um, preview is the strong word. So I, I would use it in production slowly. Uh, it's a service that looks like it's been built uh, with your platform team in mind. You know, a lot of large organizations, you'll run platform and feature teams, so, you know, feature slash product teams. So your platform team worries about uh, deployments. You know, they'll set all your standards that your organization uses. Um, you know, they'll be, it's simply like your cloud center of excellence becomes your platform platform team. And it's, it's something that's been set up with them in mind where they want to create a standardized way uh, for people to do deployments. So within Proton, you create templates, environment templates, and service templates. And the platform team creates those templates. So according to what are the organizational standards are, then the developer um, who's using will then just use one of those templates um, uh, to deploy services. And in theory, you know, using Proton, the platform team can enforce standards. You know, so a developer can't just use any random template. They can't go um, off-piste and do their own thing. 
Well, there's a number of problems with this. Um, the first problem is it creates an explicit dependency between your development, your product teams, and your platform teams, where your product team, if they need to do something that's not supported by an existing template, they are now reliant on the platform team to fix that for them. And if you're trying to move with any kind of velocity, um, that doesn't work uh, mm-hmm. because our platform team will be stretched and they might not fully understand what you're trying to do. And you'll probably have, you know, potentially kind of days trying to explain why you need a change in the, in the template um, and getting that approved, you know, because now it, it gives that platform team a significant amount of control, which is potentially what you want, um, which they think they need, but that control will slow other teams down. And depending on what kind of environment you're in, um, don't necessarily want to do that. You know, if it's heavily regulated financial services um, and you're talking like payments, you know, then you want that. But if it's even if it's financial services and someone just wants to set up um, a customer survey service or something like that or some sort of marketing-related thing, um, do you really want that? Not really. Um, so I think that's where there's a big issue with mm-hmm. it conceptually. Uh, and then also from a, you know, down to the nitty-gritty um, ways, you know, to create templates is not easy. Um, you can, what it looks like, you can create CloudFormation and Terraform templates, you know, so you can decide whatever templating, um, whatever infrastructure, infrastructure as code tool you want to use. It doesn't support CDK or AWS SAM templates, but it does support CloudFormation Terraform as far as I know. Um, and then, but yeah, there's no easy way to create templates. They don't have a tool to help you create templates or anything. So you're going to have to go into the weeds. And it, like I said, it doesn't support CDK um, and it does support, it doesn't support SAM, which are two easier ways to create CloudFormation. Um and it doesn't support cross-account um, access as well. So that's where there's a major issue with it today. Um, so, you know, most large organizations who would be the target market for this would have multiple accounts, you know, mm-hmm. um, individual, um, you know, indiv- either development teams or developers would would be running an account, uh, potentially one or two accounts, a development account, production account, et cetera. And to have a deployment tool which doesn't support multiple accounts is not great. Um, so I think it's it's going to, they're going to get a lot of feedback in the next twelve months, um, and I think it will evolve. Understand where it's come from. Um, personally, I'd prefer a tool that didn't prevent someone from doing something. I'd I'd have a more permissive tool that then reported back. So you rather set standards, and you said, okay, well this uh, this service which is currently deployed is non-compliant, but you mm-hmm. don't stop the person from deploying it. You know, you just let them deploy it and then you can, that platform team can go back and have a conversation and understand why it's non-compliant. And maybe it's a situation that that service team didn't realize that they could do something differently or actually it's just that, you know, the platform team didn't um, didn't have templates that met their needs and they go, okay, we can go back, create those templates and have that conversation. But it, it doesn't block, it's a non-blocking way of doing things. With so something a bit more like um, the well-architected tool. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I'm a big fan of non-blocking um, compliance tooling rather than blocking compliance tooling because then you end up bringing the whole business to a halt and you kind of stifle innovation. Mm-hmm. And I, like like any tool, it depends how it's used. I think the right platform team can invest heavily in this kind of approach and developers could be massively empowered by having these off-the-shelf templates that magically have amazing logging and amazing observability. But yeah, it depends if it's a constricting tool and it sounds like there's still additional support needed even to get it in those larger enterprise environments. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, just you know, not having multi-account access is going to block it for most most organizations. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, most most mature organizations run templates today anyway. You know, they've got templates, and you know, they probably have a you know, that'll be in a GitHub repo or something like that. So the people are using templates. Templates that don't necessarily work with Proton, but they, are, they have their own temp- way of creating service templates. And you know, that way of working is not new. It's just I think Proton needs to have a little bit more development. Um, to really get to meet real world needs, not hypothetical needs. And in the very large organizations where they may have some templates, something like Proton could help just with the discoverability. Because I do find sometimes you find out two teams in large organizations have two different templates for the same thing. So yeah. I think, yeah, if we can bring that discoverability and empowerment and it allows platform teams to live a better value, definitely makes sense. Yeah. You're right. I think if we're adding constriction, it depends on the use case. You need to be very careful about where you're applying that. Yeah, no, definitely. It sounds like a good idea. I was excited when I saw it. Um, you know, it's one of these things where lots of lots of companies have built similar things internally. Uh, but it, yeah, it's when it comes down to the detail, so the, the nitty gritty of how does this thing actually work. And like I said, it, it's a preview. It's a very AWS release in that the release on there is extremely minimal, not very useful to a lot of people. Um, and then by the time it goes GA, it's, it's significantly more useful. Well, talking about improvements to services, um, Aurora Serverless V2 was the other big announcement in the serverless space. Um, have you played around with Aurora much before, Ant? Um, I've always tried to avoid Aurora because, first of all, um, I like the... Because there's always a minimum cost attached to it. I've never really had relational workloads, not since I've been using AWS at least, um, that have mm-hmm. required it. In a previous life, I used to work as a DBA and Aurora would have been an amazing tool for the workloads I was dealing with then, like 10 or so years ago. But um, yeah, for me, DynamoDB has always been my kind of database of choice because of the scalability and the fact that you can start at zero and the fact that it auto-scales. Raw Serverless V2 seems to bring a lot of those benefits that we've had with Dynamo um, to Aurora now, and it looks looks pretty impressive. I think... uh... I think it was Jan who tweeted, if this is even a fraction as good as they're saying, this is going to be incredible. And yeah, I think if with that level of up and down scalability on a relational database, I think that could change the game of it with serverless architectures, where generally I'm sort of saying really use DynamoDB unless you really, really, really have to use a relational database and then use Aurora. But with RDS proxy and Aurora serverless, they've never really played too well together. So yeah. I think um, Aurora serverless V2, I think that could change a bit how people are approaching their serverless architectures. But at the same time, DynamoDB is still probably going to scale faster and be cheaper for most yeah, workloads. Definitely. If you understand, if you look at the, the original Dynamo paper and the rationale behind designing Dynamo and the whole NoSQL thing, um, you know, most organizations realize that most of their, their queries and their database workloads are simple key value type things, you know, where you're um, getting a record off, off a single value, you know, like a customer ID or an invoice ID or a user profile ID, you know, and those are the kind of stuff that's super easy for um, for NoSQL databases to use uh, that you should be using them for. And But where you have the more complex queries that, are you, that you need um, a relational database, you know, you want to put that in your relational database there. So they've had Dynamo for years now, you know, because they realize 70% is just key value type workloads. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Aurora Serverless V2 was, uh, V1 was close to, was the first step going towards a kind of serverless relational database. And now they're probably very close to achieving that now with V2. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I think you've just got to use your, you know, don't be lazy. Don't stick everything into Aurora Serverless V2 because it will still be cheaper to move your um, key value type workloads where you're just doing a fetch to get a profile ID or, you know, getting a customer details or that kind of thing. Simple fetches. Um, still do those in Dynamo. Do all your more complex stuff in Aurora. Um, and read Alex Debris's book on Dynamo if you're yes. looking into it. Yes, definitely. Couldn't um, recommend it strongly enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're going to see a lot, lot of these kind of split architectures because um, that's what makes sense. You know, put use the right database for the right workload. Exactly. And speaking of the right storage system for the right workload, S3 has now brought strong read after write consistency. I know you've been maybe looking forward to this a bit, Ant, with your CQRS patterns around S3. Do you want to talk about how you've been architecting the Senso platform? Yeah, so Senso is completely kind of event source CQRS. So what we do um, is we write, um, so every single write goes to S3 and every single read is off DynamoDB. And I've got a Lambda function that essentially um, reads data out of S3. So we write it as .json files, reads data out of S3, writes it to DynamoDB. It takes a few milliseconds to get there, but because my workloads are not heavy, um, don't require a lot of uh, kind of high-performance, low-latency type workloads, it's perfectly fine. And it takes milliseconds to get there, you know, um, 100 or so milliseconds to go from one to the other. Um and as long as so the big thing for me is having every single write into s3 means i can just back up s3 um and i can basically replay every single event into dynamo um Mm -hmm. i create all of my um ids um at my api layer um so when it gets into s3 it's got an id it gets it goes into dynamo um it uses that same id but it gives me idempotency with that um which is really useful because then Mm -hmm. if um I lose data somewhere along the line. I can just replay it out of S3 quite easily uh, for whatever reason. Um, so I think the big thing with this is that it, it, uh, with the read-after-write consistency, um, the way it works, the way this pattern works is when you get an S3 event um, in Lambda, it's just uh, sends you the path to where your um, to whatever file it was that triggered it. It doesn't send that that file's data because in S3 that file could be anything it could be some sort of binary format it could be whatever in my case it's JSON it's a .json file with read after our consistency so what um, I can guarantee now that that file will be there when I want to read it because my Lambda function what it does is it gets triggered it gets the um, the file path it then reads go back goes back and reads that file reads that mm-hmm. JSON data does some transformation in it and then writes to, to Dynamo um, now with the read after our consistency, um, I can guarantee that that data is going to be there. Um, you know, because previously what I would have is that Lambda function would, would write that data. If the data wasn't there in time, by the time the Lambda function needed to read it, I'd have to replay that at a later date. And now the, the amount of times I would ever have to replay something goes down significantly. I must say I've never really had to do that. It's just hypothetical situations. Um, but I could definitely in um, higher bandwidth, higher throughput, um, situations that would potentially happen. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it makes that a more reliable process for me. Um, and I'm not the only person doing this kind of thing. Like Nordstrom have probably led the way doing doing this. They've had event sourcing architecture for ages where they're using either Kinesis or S3 as the event store or the event log. Um, and then using DynamoDB or Elasticsearch or whatever um, or, or, or Redshift as their um, read sources. So, um, 
yeah, it makes that that pattern a lot more viable now um, and a lot more resilient. Sure. And on the subject of S3, um, a lot of people are starting to use S3 as their data lake, in a serverless data lake, and QuickSight as a serverless business intelligence. QuickSight's had a few new upgrades as of reInvent, including QuickSight Q, which is a natural language processing way to query your QuickSight's business intelligence dashboards. Business intelligence dashboards. Um, and have you had a look at this? Um, only at a super high level, I think. Um QuickSight itself is, is something that's intended for those business analysts. It's not really intended for developers. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, having any having natural language processing will definitely improve it because it'll make it easier for folks who are, whose skill is interpreting data and not writing code to get the data. Um, it'll make life easier for them um, to, to fetch that data. And also potentially even make QuickSight more available to folks who aren't necessarily even data analysts who just want, you know, high-level management, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it looks like a really interesting um, development. Um, yeah, I'll, just, I'll be interested to see if it, see if it takes off. Um, I don't think it's going to do any data analysts out of work, though. I think it just no, will, it'll just make them more productive. You know, hopefully they can do more quicker. And I think the other thing is, it might, you know, for some things be a little bit more efficient, but at the same time, I think it's a good way just to get people less familiar with data to want to engage with it. So I think, again, it's that accessibility angle. If I can show maybe a less experienced business uh, intelligence team that they can just ask questions to the new architecture, and then they can go and play around with making their dashboards later on. But I think it's that initial hurdle of just like, this is a new tool, you need to learn how to use it. But at least to start with, you can just ask how many sales were there in January and get the results straight back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it will, it will probably, you know, save those business analyst teams from dealing with their end users too much. <laughs> You've got that sales manager who has that exact question, you know, instead of, you know, going for the, to this analyst team and saying, okay, I need all the sales uh, for X month by X person, they can just ask QuickSight now. Exactly. Hopefully there's less uh, slides being emailed around with the results. Um, So yeah, thanks Anne so much for your time. I think we're going to do a deeper dive on everything that's come out in reInvent because reInvent isn't over yet um, at the end. Uh, So just before the end of the year is a panel discussion on the serverless London meetup. For people interested in what you're up to, Ant, where can they find you online? Um, Well, I'm on on Twitter, but my Twitter feed is a bit all over the place. So I am Stan on Twitter, um, at I am Stan on Twitter. Um, Otherwise, yeah, go check out homeschool.dev. It's a project we're working on. Uh, We're actually going to be putting up some reinvent content on there this week um so some of the projects i've talked about so this um node.js workers uh, example project i'm going to be putting that up as a uh, as content up on homeschool.dev in the next week or so um and i think yeah i'm going to be playing with a lot of these tools over the coming weeks i'm going to be putting them up on homeschool.dev and of course we've got our courses from um jan vlad um slobodan and, and alexander as well there and where can people find the courses? Yeah, homeschool.dev. Okay, so the blog and the course is all in the same place. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything will be on homeschool.dev. Nice. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ant. Um, and yeah, look forward to chatting through the rest of reInvent with you at the meetup before the end of the month. Okay, awesome. Great to chat. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation with Ant. And Ant, thank you so much for your time today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review in the podcasting app of your choice. Also, go to serverless-transformation.com to find our blog and associated newsletter. Serverless Transformation is powered by Theodo. 
We help companies launch digital products with state-of-the-art serverless architectures. And if you want to find out more about Theodo, go to theodo, T-H-E-O-D-O dot co dot UK. And you can see our expertise section and jump into serverless to find more of our content.